In today's live, we're going to be talking edge paint, how to test for quality, how to test for longevity. How do you stitch angles in thin or soft vegetable tanned leathers? How do you manage your workflow as a leather crafter? And many other questions associated with leather craft that have been sent in via Instagram DM. Now, if you're not following me on Instagram, at leathercraftmasterclass, and then you can get your questions in every month so I can answer them here live for you on the Q&A sessions. Hi, my name is Philip, and welcome to the Leathercraft Masterclass Q&A. Now, as usual, I'm gonna be going live on Instagram to take some live questions as well, but obviously this is pre-recorded on YouTube. Now, if you do have any comments or anything you have to say about some of the answers that I'm giving, any further questions, or if you want a question for the next Q&A, don't forget to pop it down in the comments below. And if you enjoy this video, don't forget to give me a thumbs up. Okay, so let's go live on Instagram. You are now live, excellent, excellent. Okay, so I'm gonna go straight into it. And uh, the first question today is, uh, how to check a new edge paint for quality and durability? How do you test a new edge paint for quality and durability? Interesting question really, because there's quite a few edge paints on the market now, and quite a few that are very, very popular, but uh, which one is right for you? So there's quite a few tests that you can do that I recommend. First and foremost, how easy is, is it to apply? So even if it's durable and everything else, if it's terrible to apply, and when you come to do your edge paint, it's either too thick or too thin uh, for how you apply it or the kind of leather that you're putting it on, then you're never gonna get the results that you want from your edge paint because it's just not it's just not behaving itself on the edge like you want it to. If it's reasonably easy to apply, uh, if it's reasonably good at self-leveling without dripping too much, because there's always that compromise. Uh, Self-leveling -le is always good because it kind of flattens itself out, but that's usually thinner viscosity edge paints that can tend to drip. So it's always kind of a toss up between uh, a smooth application and something that's it can be quite drippy, especially if you have a curved object, it's very difficult to apply unless you use lots and lots of very thin layers. So how easy is it to apply? The next thing is, how long does it take to dry? And does it dry nice and straight? Does it dry nice and flat? Uh, do you have any issues with ridges down the center, which a lot of people think is it absorbing in the center? It's not, it's along the edges of the dome where it's thinnest, it dries faster and it pulls away towards the edge, causing a valley down the center. That's just something that dries a little bit too quickly. Um, it's not bad quality that some people might think it is. It's usually when you're in an atmosphere that's very dry, air conditioned, for example, or uh, high heat in the middle of summer, you can get that, or edges that are very, very thick, very, very wide. We're talking five millimeters or more. Very easy to get a ridge down the center. Um, so slow down the drying process and also thinner layers and lots of sanding in between. But going back to testing, you can also test how well does it hold up to twisting. So what I like to do is get a strip of leather and then edge paint it on both sides and then let it dry. And then I like to twist it and twist it and twist and torture test it, usually with a set of pliers just to see if that twisting and stretching will actually start to crack or delaminate the edge paint. And sometimes it does, 
Um, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it holds up very, very well. Giardini is, is quite tough in that regard. Uh, I think that was the best I tested on that test. The poorest was Fibing's Edge Coat, uh, which is not really an edge paint. It's more of an edge stain. It's designed to kind of be put on once and that's it. It's not several layers. A lot of people uh, try and use it as an edge paint and it's not very good in that regard. But um, yeah, so torture testing it by twisting. Another one is, is delaminating. Can you actually pick it with your fingernail? If you cut it down the center, so you've done a cross section of your edge paint, can you peel that end off with your fingernail? If you can, that's not good. The second test is if you give it a little bit of a slice with a sharp knife to separate the edge paint from the leather, can you then gather it and pull it off without the edge paint breaking. If the edge paint breaks, that's good. If it kind of carries on and peels off, that's not great. But if you're gonna do uh, that test again, um, make sure you do it on different leathers as well. It might just be you've chosen a very waxy or oily leather and it delaminates quite readily. That just might mean that it needs roughing on the edge or a primer, for example. So. Um, do test, torture test, and also test on different leathers. That's very important as well. All right, a couple of comments here. Uh, hello again from Northern Minnesota. Hello, I think you were on the last live, weren't you? I'm assuming there's only one person in Minnesota. <laughs> Anya Sushko, handbags, says, hey, I hope you're doing well. Good to see you around again, uh, Anya, and congratulations on the little one. I don't think I've had a chance to, uh, to say that. Good to see you. Cool. Okay, so that's edge paint. Uh, the next question. Any insights on how to keep a consistent workflow, motivation, and inspiration? So this is, uh, I, I'm gonna assume, I didn't check who this was, but I'm gonna assume that you either have a full-time or part-time leather goods business. One, one thing that I've found that helps me kind of organize my day, helps me manage workflow and keeps things working and flowing throughout the day is organizing good habits to start your day with. So sometimes you can have, if you're working in a leather goods business, you can have lots of orders. You've got emails to get through. You've got customers contacting you. Um, you could have uh, suppliers that you need to get in contact with. You might have your finances or taxes to deal with. There's lots of different things um, as leather crafters or people in the leather craft industry who own a business and run a business. You kind of have to wear many, many hats, social media being one of them, video being another one. It's, you know, it's virtually endless, especially if you have a, a podcast as well, if you have uh, an internet forum, a blog, a website that you have to upkeep, the list is endless. So sometimes it could be very daunting, sometimes it could be very overwhelming, and it's easy to kind of cherry pick what you want to do that day and do the things that you want to do and avoid the things that you don't want to do. So I find uh, starting out with good habits, you know, what time of day are you checking emails? What time of day are you checking DMs? What time of day are you posting on Instagram? Or what time of day are you actually sitting down and doing the work that you want to be doing in your craft? What time of day are you making the phone calls? So there's all sorts of things that you can try and organize to make sure that your day starts off correctly and that you're working through it without any issues. 
Um, because it's very easy to get overwhelmed and you know you get brain fog and then it becomes overwhelming and that's that's not a good place to be so creating good habits and starting is so starting with the basics is what i recommend starting with a good morning routine you know what time of day do you wake up what's the first thing that you do when you when you wake up and starting with a routine that you can then allow to become a habit over time uh, recently, last few weeks, I've been waking up a little bit earlier, well, a lot earlier in the morning. And what I do is I get my phone and I put it next to the coffee machine. And next to the coffee machine is my cups with my pods and the coffee machine is filled with water. So literally, when the alarm goes off, I have to go downstairs to the coffee machine to turn it off. And while I'm there, I just press the thing and the coffee starts coming out. And then I can have that and then I can go and have a shower. Uh, get changed, go straight to the gym, come back, have another shower if necessary, always necessary, uh, have a shake, and then I kind of start my day, and then I start with emails or getting back to customers, doing my DMs, and then I have a monthly schedule so I know what I'm doing. Um, so if you start with the basics of what you're doing in the morning, what time you stop to have something to eat, what time you finish at the end of the day, because it's very easy to just to go over and then it's 10 o'clock at night and you, you're still not done. So try and structure your day as much as possible to uh, give yourself the best chance. And uh, the last thing you talked about was motivation and inspiration. I would definitely recommend, as I do, uh, every month, something that I do is I set aside an entire day where I take my laptop, I take my phone, I take a notepad and pen, and I just go to a coffee shop. And it might be a different coffee shop every single time. It might be one that I'm familiar with, but new locations often kind of give you a little bit more inspiration because it's you're in a different environment, if you know what I mean. You're not kind of doing the same thing all the time. And what I do is I just sit there and I come up with uh, new ideas. Usually it's about what the next course is going to be, um, how I'm going to structure it, how, um, what techniques I really want to teach, what have I done already, what do I need to do. Uh, can be ideas for social media posts. Uh, blog ideas is another good one. And I sit there for several hours, usually get through quite a bit of coffee and, uh, and just come up with these ideas. And I might just go through Instagram or Pinterest or scroll through Google Images and just kind of see what's out there and start designing something, gaining inspiration. But if you can set aside an entire day to sit down and go, right, I'm looking for new ideas. I'm looking to get inspired by new designs, uh, new concepts, try a different leather that I haven't tried before, try a new technique that I haven't tried before, experiment with something. Uh, and there's nothing else to distract you. That day you're not doing your usual things. This is a sacred day that you use to kind of propel you, your business, your mindset forward uh, a little bit further than it was last time. All right, so how do you slick edges? So next question, third question, how do you slick edges on a project that is non-vegetable tanned leather? Okay, so how do you slick an edge that is not vegetable tanned leather? So I'm going to assume uh, when you say non-vegetable tanned leather, you're probably not talking about alum, alum toured leather and all that kind of brain tanned leather. You're probably talking about chrome tanned leather. How do you slick an edge? Um, and when you say slick, I'm going to assume that you mean burnish. So I'll read that question as how do you burnish chrome tanned leather? 
The general consensus is that you can't, uh, mainly because it's not firm enough. Uh, it doesn't react with water the same way. It's, it's much more water resistant than uh, vegetable tan leather. And add to that, it's, it's too soft. It doesn't hold itself uh, to, to be burnished. So how do you normally tackle chrome tan leather? Well, first of all, an easy one is going to be edge paint. I say easy. Uh, a common one is going to be edge paint. Uh, another one is going to be a turned edge, okay? Alternatively, you can leave it raw, but chrome tan leather with raw edges doesn't really uh, age very well. So turned edge, where you skive the end, you thin the edge of the leather, and you fold it over itself and usually stitch it to another piece that's folded too. Uh, that's probably the most elegant way of dealing with it, but uh, edge paint is gonna be another one. There is a way um, that I sometimes a method that I sometimes use to give chrome tan leather a burnished look. Uh, and that is to stiffen the edge first. So you can use something like, uh, hold on one second, you can use acrylic resiline. Resiline, okay? Acrylic resiline by Fibings. But it's just like a, you know, like an acrylic paint uh, varnish that you, uh, water-based varnish that you put on wood. It's a bit like that, but watered down. Uh, what I like to do is get a sponge quite well saturated and go along the edge of the chrome tan leather. And what that will do is it will soak into it. It doesn't sit on top. It's not like edge paint. It's not thick. It soaks in. And you might need to do that a couple times to get the right effect. But what that will do is it will start stiffening up the edge enough so that you can sand it. Okay, and then after sanding, if it's still okay, you can sand it with a finer grit and a finer grit and a finer grit. You might need to add a little bit more resiline along the way, but it doesn't take long to dry at all. Um, and then once you get to a nice smooth edge, you can then use a, a top coat, a gloss top coat, like uh, Giardini, Giardini's top coat is a good one. Uh, I think United's make one. Or alternatively, if it's a really fine grit that you finished it on, what you can do is uh, start polishing it with wax. Okay, so you can use a Knorba wax, you can use uh, Columbus wax or something like that, but essentially you have to stiffen up that edge first. You can't burnish it necessarily. Uh, some combination tanned leathers uh, you can burnish with things like tokenol. I'm talking retanned leathers, so a combination of uh, chrome tanned leathers and, and uh, vegetable tanned, double tanned. You can, so Latigo leather, things like that. It's, it has a little bit of stiffness. It's not as water resistant as pure chrome. And with the right edge compound like tokenol, you can give a, a reasonable uh, burnish to it, but it's not gonna be as, as good as pure veg. So that's, that's one method that you can use, but a more elegant method is going to be a turned edge or alternatively uh, edge paint. Uh, next question. Edge paint storage, edge paint storage. Uh, temperature, longevity, etc. So temperature, longevity, etc. I would re always recommend if you're in high production, maybe it's you or uh, a team of people in your workshop or boutique, um, and you're getting through quite a few products, then buying edge paint in litre bottles can make sense. 
If you make one to two projects a month and some of them might be burnished or turned edge, so you're not actually getting through edge paint that much, you might have several liters of different colors on your shelf for a very, very long time. Some might be um, a little bit more used than others. There is a shelf life. Uh, sometimes it will be listed on the side of the bottle. Um, but once you've opened it, I don't like to keep mine for more than six months before kind of throwing it out. Some Giardini lasts about a year. I have some bottles that look pretty good and they've, they're almost two years old of United's edge paint, but it doesn't really get that cold in here. So, but I wouldn't use them uh, unless it was on a prototype, but ideally you want to, you want to kind of be getting through your edge paint in about six months. And if, if you still got it at that point, I would probably let it go. Another tip I'll give you is to use smaller bottles of edge paint. So if you can buy them in say 250 mil, or if you're really not using edge paint very often, 100 mil, there's a lot of places now, uh, smaller shops that will actually sell you that quantity. Uh, it may not be as, as economical as buying, you know, a large uh, liter bottle. But if you have smaller ones, it's every time you open it, it's, it's a fresh batch. Okay, it's going to last longer if you're not opening it frequently. So you might have something that will last well over a year if you haven't opened it on your shelf. But if you're constantly opening it and dipping it in and there's bacteria getting in, there's all sorts of, you know, bacteria and fungus and yeasts in the atmosphere that are going to get inside and want to erode it. So that is buying smaller bottles is something that I'd recommend. It's what I do um, before when I you know, produce leather goods for a business and it's what I did for a living. I'd buy larger bottles. Now I buy 250, 250 mil bottles. And uh, I just, you know, it's only a small quantity. If I haven't used it for a while, I'll throw it away. Um, so it's, it's not a problem. Uh, another thing to consider as well and I get asked this quite often, is about edge paint and freezing. Edge paint, if it's been frozen at any point, it's, it's garbage, it's rubbish, it's, it's to be thrown away. So if you're ordering from a cold country, or you're ordering from a country and you live in a cold country, and it's the middle of winter, that's not the best time to be purchasing edge paint because if you're, I don't know, in Australia and you're ordering from Norway and it's the middle of winter, it might be fine when it gets picked up by the delivery company and then when it goes to the warehouse, is the warehouse being heated? Is it heated in the van along the way when it's minus 10 degrees? Because if it gets frozen at any point, uh, it's, it's degraded, it's, it's perished, it's no good. Now, the person who asked me this question is an airline pilot, so he'd probably know more than I would about this, but I'm not sure what temperatures the cargo hold and the plane reaches, whether it's actually heated in there or um, it can go below zero. So that's something to think about as well when it goes on the plane, but especially ordering edge paint in, the, in winter. The same can go for glue as well, by the way. A lot of glues will not deal with uh, being frozen and thawed out. Okay, it's not like a chocolate cake. <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, so this is, I guess this is a personal, well, not a personal question, but a question aimed more towards me personally. 
what leather craft are you most proud of and what do you think is the hardest project uh, to do? What's the hardest thing to do in leather craft? So two questions there. Uh, what work am I most proud of? I, I thought about this question earlier and I have a bit of a bad trait. I'm not always that proud of myself very much. I constantly get reminded if I reach a milestone or do well in something uh, to take a second to in enjoy achieving something um, of note uh, in business, personal, anything like that. Um, I, really, I really do struggle to try and, because every time I do good work or I do something really well or there's a course that I put out and it's a huge success, I kind of, I don't feel proud necessarily. I feel like, yes, that's what's supposed to happen. But if it goes wrong, then it's battle stations, you know? <laughs> so maybe it's not, it's, it's difficult to find what I've done that I'm proud of. But one thing that is a surefire way to feel a sense of pride is when I see uh, students who have created something from the courses, especially if it's the first. Uh, I remember uh, the first person to create the De Havilland travel bag, which I think is Mike's leather. I have a student success post on Instagram with him. He created it. Um, apologies, Mike, if, if I'm wrong. I think you're from Russia, but I remember you were on holiday at the time. I think it was Thailand and you had a photo shoot done with a bag. But I remember you sending me through uh, those pictures and it was the first De Havilland to come out after the course. And of course it takes a few weeks. People have to watch the course, organize the supplies if they don't have them already, uh, and then obviously make the bag. But I remember seeing it for the first time and it was a big project, right? It's not the most technical, but it's a very large project. I thought, are people gonna take this? Are they gonna do it? Are they gonna like it? Uh, is it something that people are gonna want to make? And uh, I just remember seeing the first one. It was, it was quite emotional, uh, more so than many of the other courses for me to see it. And I was like, man, I'm so happy to see that. It just really gave me a sense of pride that perhaps is lacking in myself. But when I've done a, a good enough job where somebody can make it on the other side of the world and understand my techniques and not even send me an email asking for clarification on anything, but there it is, just like, that's, I taught that and someone has made it and then it just snowballed after that and so many people. I think the only project that has been created more is the Turin uh, luxury handbag, but that was a kind of a milestone of like, yeah, people do like the bigger courses if they're a little bit more technical or challenging. There are a lot of people that really love that and I guess that, uh, that makes me the most proud is when I see students creating and it could be small projects as well. It's not the big ones especially people who are brand new to the craft. They've just kind of learned how to stitching and then, you know, stitch and then suddenly they make a card wallet that I've put out in one of the courses. It's just so encouraging to see people kind of leveling up and building up their skills and, and pushing themselves. And yeah, it gives me a, a great sense of pride. Next part of the question is uh, just checking here. What brand of edge paint do you use? I use Uniter's EP2000 which is a kind of a satin finish. It's not polished, it's not matte, it's kind of somewhere in between. What do you think is the hardest to do? So what's the project that I think is the hardest, the hardest thing I've ever done? Oh, courses wise, I think 
there's a few challenging products, best spoke products probably the most, but uh, courses wise, something that you guys have known or seen, probably the hardest technically is the Bloomsbury attache case. Uh, that was that was hard. Not, I mean, the project is challenging, yes, but it's teaching it in a way that by the end of the course, no one's got any questions. Uh, teaching it in a way that by the end of the course, no one's going to mess up. It was a really difficult one. You have to think several chess moves ahead all the time. Are they going to understand that? Are they going to remember to do this? You know, emphasize this point several times to make sure that they understand that they have to allow a margin for the thickness of the lining. Otherwise, the case is not going to close. The locks are not going to close. The hinge is going to be out of alignment and all sorts of things. So uh, that was probably technically the most challenging to teach. Uh, that was a long time in the making. I'd been thinking about that and planning that for about two years. So to give people an idea of how long a course takes to create, it's not one month. Uh, the prep, there's several overlap with the prep work that goes into to teaching something like that. Or the, the Blackwell Mini Doctor's Bag, that was another, another one that took a long time to prepare, months and months. I'm getting better at the moment, but uh, that one was about seven or eight months to, to prep that course, to teach it in a way that people could do it. And two people have done that so far. That I think that's probably the hardest one for students to do because it involves creating your own metal frame around a form and I provide patterns for the wooden former. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, those, those two are probably the most challenging to teach uh, and probably to make as well, but a few people have made them now and it's uh, encouraging to see. Um, okay, so final question, last one. Uh, do you have any tips on how to keep a decorative angle in thin leather? Good question. This has been the, the bane of many stitch artists over the years <laughs> of how to keep a decorative angle. So when the stitches are kind of zigzagged across, they come down at an angle like that. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying in hand stitching. It's oftentimes, oftentimes very difficult to achieve a, a very steep angle, which is indicative of hand stitching so that you can see, yes, this was hand stitch versus something that was a machine stitch, which looks a lot straighter. So we always aim for those little high angles because it kind of shows that it's something that's been done by hand and something to be proud of. So how do you get that in thin leathers? So if you understand the principles behind stitching of how stitching works in leather is if you, if you say you take a piece of thread, okay, you take a length of thread and you mash it up and put it on the table. It's all in a twisted mess. You grab one end of the thread, you grab the other end of the thread, and you pull it apart under tension. Okay, what's it going to do? As long as there's no knots, it's going to straighten out. It's going to form a straight line. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So naturally, when you're stitching in a project, the leather, the way it's angled, because our pricking irons and our awls are keeping an angle in the leather, the hole that we're making is diagonal. The leather is telling it to go at an angle. So if you're pulling really, really tight, the thread is saying, the more tension you give to me, the straighter I want to be. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So on thick leather and firm leather, like vegetable tanned leather, 
say for example, a bridle leather belt, four millimeters thick, turnover maybe two, two and a half millimeters thick, and you're stitching that in, you've got six, six and a half millimeters of firm vegetable tan leather. That leather is the boss at that point, okay? The thread is not gonna dictate where it lies, it is gonna do as it's told and it's stay at nice angles. But if you go through thin leather, maybe two half millimeter pieces of uh, goat skin put together and you're trying to stitch that, it's very soft and very thin and it's not going to dictate to the thread where to sit. The thread is going to want to straighten out and that's what this individual is trying to avoid. So how can we uh, get around that? Well, you can either choose a firmer leather or a thicker leather. And if that's not an option for you, um, you can reduce the SPI. Okay, so the easiest thing to do is reduce the stitches per inch. So if you're noticing on a certain thickness and a certain firmness that you're losing that angle and the stitches are going straight, reduce the stitches per inch. So that might mean if a uh, 3.38 millimeter iron, seven SPI, is not working for you, reduce it down to a three millimeter stitch spacing or nine SPI and see how that works. And if it's still not getting the results, reduce it down a little bit more. Another thing that you can do is reduce the amount of tension that you're giving it as well, okay? Remember, especially on a smaller stitch spacing, you don't need as much tension or as thick a thread as if you're having a larger stitch spacing, higher SPI. So that's something else to, uh, to think about as well. Now, if you're laminating two pieces of leather together, what can you put in between? If, you, if it's not necessarily gonna thicken it out too much, what can you put in between that's going to stiffen it, okay? To allow it to dictate what the thread should be doing. Um, you can add, very thin reinforcement, so that could be a thin bonded leather, 0.25 millimeters, uh, a very thin piece of vegetable tan leather, or a simple way of thickening, of thickening, a simple way of stiffening two pieces of leather glued together is to use PVA glue instead of, say, contact adhesive, which doesn't add much stiffness at all. PVA soaks into the leather and hardens and gives a very mild fiberglass effect, if you know what I mean. So when you use PVA, you generally end up with something that's stiffer uh, compared to something that you would use, uh, say, solvent-based contact adhesive or especially uh, water-based contact adhesive solvent-free. So that's something else to be aware of. I appreciate your video explaining how to hand sew canvas. Uh, you're welcome. To be completely truthful, I can't remember doing that. <laughs> Maybe I have at some point. I've made a lot of videos. <laughs> I was like... Uh, have I? I must have at some point. Maybe it was stitching canvas to leather. Damn. Okay. Too many videos, eh? Okay. So I hope that has uh, answered some of the questions, guys. Now, uh, don't forget right now, and I'm not going to be doing it for that much longer. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be coming out with a different offer, but right now there is a guide on leathercraftmasterclass.com, which is a 20 page article on how to choose tools. There's also a leather guide on how to choose the right leather for you and your work. So don't forget to go there, leathercraftmasterclass.com, which will be linked below on you guys, for you guys on YouTube. 
and get your free guides. I'm gonna be changing that up soon, so uh, not sure what I'm gonna do with the guides at the moment, but uh, who knows, so make sure you get yours. So thank you for joining me, and if you enjoyed this video, don't forget to give me a thumbs up below to let me know. If you have any questions again about anything that I've talked about or if you have some questions that you want for the next Q&A, uh, don't forget to put them below in the comments section. And of course, join me on Instagram at Leathercraft Masterclass, uh, where you can put your questions in on the stories when I start asking for monthly questions. And that way you can double your chances of getting your questions answered. But thank you for joining me and I will see you in the next Q&A. Cheers, guys.